Welcome to the Lawn and Garden Podcast with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Originally aired on KGOS and KERM in Torrington, join Jeff, Jerry, and their special guests as they talk all things gardening in Wyoming. Our Lawn and Garden Podcast helps you improve your home garden or small acreage. Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. With me today is Dr. Jerry Urshabek from Urshabek Chiropractic. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Jeff. How are you today? Hey, just spectacular. Life is a little crazy, but we are in hope of spring. Yes, we are. We are in hope of spring. And also with us this morning is Donna Hoffman. She is the horticulturist in uh, Natrona County for UW Extension. Good morning, Donna. Good to see you guys, and uh, it's nice to visit with everybody. Yeah, we're glad you're with us today. Uh, Let's take a few moments and listen to our sponsors, and we'll be back in a minute. Do you have questions about the coronavirus or COVID-19? Go to uwyocnporg slash coronavirus slash uw-extension to find reliable information, community resources, and recipes using the food in your pantry. Looking for the best way to keep up with all the news from University of Wyoming Extension, the College of Agriculture, and Wyoming Ag Experiment Stations? The uwagnews.com website features real-time education, research, and extension events, and feature stories from across the state. Bookmark uwagnews.com today and subscribe to our monthly email newsletter, uwagnews.com, growing people, knowledge, and communities. Okay, we're back. This is Jeff Edwards, and this is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program with Jerry Urshabek and Donna Hoffman. Donna, you get the floor today. Uh, What would you like to talk about? Well, I've been visiting with some of my master gardeners about things that they've been starting seeds on, and um, several of them have have started seeds. Some of them, I think, got a little over-anxious, and they're going to have some kind of leggy plants when we get done with things. And I think some are gonna be right on target and ready to plant out. We'll see how that falls with with our our work schedules as those unfold in front of us. What do you mean by leggy plants? Can you describe that for folks? So if plants are planted indoors, especially if they don't have great light indoors, they tend to stretch to reach towards the light. And that makes the uh, inner node spaces a lot longer than if they had really good bright light and so they get long and stretched out and the term that usually gets used in that is leggy. Okay, Jerry, are you start, have you started seeds indoors? Well, I have. Uh, I had some castor beans that I wanted to start and see if they were viable still because I haven't used those seeds in a long time. And I dug up just a little bit and I put it inside my giant elephant ear container and watered them in well and i see that they're really swelling so they've tripled the size i imagine there there should be something coming out of that seed soon so what do you mean by a giant elephant ear container actually it's not a giant elephant ear container it's just a elephant ear in a container and i misspoke about using the word giant (laughs) (laughs) but elephant ears really do get quite big they have really huge leaves okay i was going to make a smart aleck comment about elephant ears but uh okay okay. thank you yeah my ears (laughs) as you see are very large as well that's how you can tell that my brother and i are related because of the ears (laughs) good to know good to know so uh donna um i've started some things already in my high tunnel Yes. Um, I have spinach growing. I have a, uh, a uh, brassicae greens mixture. Uh, I, Diane asked me to buy some buy a lettuce mix. And um, for whatever reason, I thought this would be a little bit different. But I think it's things like pak choy and maybe some kale growing in it. So uh, it, it's, gonna, it's going to be different. Um, surprise. Let's put it that way. Right. Uh, and then... Um, Radishes are already going, and uh, this last week when we had such a cold spell, uh, everything we covered up pretty good to try to keep them uh, 
keep them going since you know the temperature got down into the single digits right exactly <laughs> so we have our things in the house growing on the end of the kitchen table near the glass sliding door and i've okay. turned the the uh, Rubbermaid tub that they've been growing in. That's that's to make them leak proof on my dining room table. Um, but I've turned them twice because they're already starting to lean towards the window. And and the first time I did it, Mark asked me, why did you turn the pots around? I said, well, they're starting to lean towards light. So they really are probably not getting as much light as they would like to. I'm a little concerned about the cabbage getting leggy and then oh, yeah. not being happy when it goes outside. So Then wanting to fall over when you right. actually transplant them. Yeah. Right. So, so, so we'll see how this works out. So Donna, when you say that we're afraid of them getting leggy, so should one wait a little longer for certain plants to <laughs> plant? Well, the ones that, that we tend to, to get a little over anxious about are the ones that take such a long season and usually it's the peppers and the tomatoes and tomatoes you can you can always transplant them a little deeper when you transplant them if they get leggy because they will grow roots along those those node tissues and the, or the inner node tissues and uh, root in the ground no matter how deep you bury them but peppers if they have a long stretched out stem and then they start producing a lot of fruit can get pretty top heavy, which is really hard on those stems to hold everything up. So the stem can become weakened in the process. And that's what I'm kind of concerned about with those cabbage. If you produce a really large head of cabbage on a fairly weak stem that's stretched out because it had lower light when it was first germinating, it, it can uh, cause problems later on. It's best to have short growth on cabbage otherwise they'll just kind of lay over and and then sit on top of the soil they, they will they will still grow and produce but it, it it's just different i may have to i may have to figure out some sort of a donut support system under the cabbage for the summer i don't know but now i've tried growing cabbage in a pallet and that seemed to work out really really well so okay. it, it, it took the, the cabbage off of the ground uh -huh. and it made the bottom leaves a little cleaner and oh. a little easier to throw dust on it. Good. Uh, like a seven, like, uh -huh. excuse me, like a, uh, carburetor, like a carburetor product. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so Jerry, did you grow those vertically or did you grow, did you let them grow through the slats of the pallet or uh, flat on the ground? Flat, I, I put the pallet flat on the ground okay. and it really seemed to make a lot of that that bottom leaf you get so much splash dirt up on top of that when you water it and it was just I, I put a bunch of newspaper underneath the pallet as well and then made a hole so i didn't have as many weeds so it's it really seemed to work out quite well and then i i dug a trench around my pallet so that i could keep my soil uniformly wet because that sounds I like think, a really good idea i think that that a lot of cabbages split because they don't have uh, uniform water that you let them dry out too hard and then you water them really heavy and then they grow and, and split. Is that, is that correct? How that works? It is. Yeah. That's, that's I, in my. I enjoy oh. this show so much because I also learned some great tips from yeah. other people on your show. Yeah. I've, I've actually seen people where they will tip the pallet on its side and then seal that little space underneath. And then they have a raised, it's not a raised bed, but it's a container container gardener growing on its side, basically. I just wasn't sure if that could handle the weight of the cabbage growing vertically like that. Well, I'm not necessarily sure that they allow cabbage to grow when it's in when it's vertical. Yeah, yeah. I think they would choose other things to plant in. It. Okay, I think yeah. we're on the same page then. And and maybe it's even attached to a wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they 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 tripod them and put them in like a teepee sure. and, right. and grow some stuff like that. Yeah. 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 That would probably work too. Fascinating stuff. Things to try, right? Yes, exactly. Especially if people are new gardeners and they're thinking about doing things, try, trying things out this year uh, that might not have a lot of space. And so, you know, container gardening is a really good way to start gardening. Uh, start out small. One of the things that we talk about is um, 
people seem to be hesitant about starting a garden. Well, starting a garden is probably one of the most inexpensive mistakes that you can make if you are going to make mistakes. You right. can always start over. It's always a new thing. You know, if something doesn't work out, try something a little bit different. Yeah. And we try to avoid the words, you can't do that. Well, <laughs> you watch. It, it, you watch me. I can do that. Yeah, particularly to gardeners and master gardeners. Somebody, somebody will come in and say, "Oh, you can't do that here." And and funny enough, uh, I have been doing it for years, and uh, maybe you should. Uh... <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get stuck too hard in that disciplinary activity. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that often. <laughs> but we've we've taken some uh, pallets, and what we're going to do this year is put them flat on the ground, and then fill them up with dirt. Excuse me, fill them up soil. with soil. Yeah, use the, and, use uh, the right term, Jerry. <laughs> absolutely, and then you know scrape it off so that the wood is exposed a little bit, and you just plant in between the slats. So as why a don't raised you, bed. Why, why don't you plant your pumpkin right on there like that, so that you can. Uh, uh, get it to the scale at the end of the season? Well, because uh, you need at least about 10 feet away from the mother root as oh, okay. the pumpkin vine grows out. And so um, that that quite wouldn't work. You can't do that. <laughs> well, watch me. Watch me. You could probably put a pallet under it once you pick your pumpkin, though, and uh, let it continue to grow on the pallet. Correct. Yeah. You could certainly do that. Could don't you do that normally? Do that. Don't you do that normally, Jerry? Put it on a. Pallet? I don't, but some people do, and some people put a piece of styrofoam underneath it so that uh, it doesn't have any rot under the plant. And other people use a fine sand. So uh, it just kind of depends on what you want to want to practice with, okay, or play with. Yeah. So Donna, we're, you know, May 15th in Goshen County is usually about the last frost-free day. We don't know if that's going to hold or not, but um, <laughs> if, uh, considering the current weather pattern that we've had lately, um, if that is true and there are things that people could start indoors, what would you recommend besides tomatoes and peppers? Uh, uh, okay, so several of the coal crops, which it, it's kind of a derivative of some of the German for those those crops is cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, and cauliflower are all good ones to start indoors. Most of your root crops tend to be ones that do best if you can plant them outdoors, at least in my experience. So radishes, turnip, beets, those you'd want to wait until it's time to plant them directly outdoors in the garden. Any of those that, that grow directly in the ground and what we pull out of the ground is the part that we consume. Um, those, those I'd recommend just planting directly out in the garden. There are some people who start um, cucurbits, which include most of our squashes and our cucumbers. And our pumpkins. Pumpkins, pumpkins. I have a funny story about pumpkin too, but most of those, I, I've always taken the track that those do best if you plant them directly outside in a hill and they don't seem to transplant very well, but there are people who always grow little transplants and transplant them out and do very well with them. So um, that's one that's kind of on the fence on, on your garden technique and what you've had success with and what you're willing to try and see if it works. So I've, I've also noticed people will um, can have transplanted sweet corn. Uh, they'll start sweet corn early and then they'll transplant it into their garden, which I is... I heard that the other day and I was just kind of dumbfounded about it. Donna, you're just going, you can't do that. You, it doesn't <laughs> work. <laughs> no, my comment really was, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. Um, it, uh, when, when we were living in central Iowa, they would start sweet corn really early and then transplant it out into the field. And that's the first time I'd ever heard of it. Uh, happening but um uh it was kind of an interesting thing you know those guys take sweet corn pretty seriously Very there and by the by the fourth of july they have sweet corn which is wow, uh, wow. which is pretty crazy i suppose that's how we all get it when we want it for those celebrations in the summertime yeah uh, yes <laughs> some of our some of our pumpkin people are crazy enough that they will also do that uh plant their pumpkin and I had one guy say that they were going to plant last weekend but the the hardest part about trans, transplanting 
is the cold shock onto the plant, but he puts heat tape into the ground uh-huh. and wow. warms the ground up so that it's not so much of a shock. Okay. And huh. so, you know, people do some crazy things right. in the, in the terms of competition or I want that first sweet corn by the 4th of July. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I heard another one the other day and I, I, I had never heard or tried this, but someone was talking about they planted um, in one of those seed trays that just has a long channel that you plant the seeds in. And then when you transplant, you just kind of separate the plants rather than them being in individual oh. cells. Uh-huh. And they pinch out the top part of their peas before they transplant them out from growing them in seed indoors. And that makes the plant, plant more bushy oh, okay. and supposedly gives it a, a, a much higher harvestable product because it causes more flowering. Now, peas are one because they're so cold hardy that, again, I've always planted them outdoors, just directly into the ground. So I'm a little bit curious about trying some peas, starting them indoors, pinching them, and maybe keeping them in a little bit separate part of the garden um, to see if they produce better than the ones that go directly outside. And, and I don't know, maybe plant, pinch some of the ones that are planted outside and not pinch some others. You know, you could do peas in a container uh, fairly easily if, as long as you uh, had some form to trellis them trellis and put them. them out on your patio. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know that form of, of pinching works for coleus and makes a coleus flower uh, bush up pretty hard. I've never heard of pinching peas. Yeah, I hadn't either. So, um, yeah, I guess every time you get the opportunity to watch some other gardener talk about gardening, you're going to get an idea of what to try and see if it works. And it's usually, and it's usually the old, old guys that are still gardening and you go in and say, Hey, what do you do about this? And they, they always have an idea. Yeah, right. Exactly. So the moral of the story is there's never never one right way to do something, oh, particularly right. in gardening, right? Yeah. So it may work for you. It might not work for somebody else, but try, try take, take yeah. some risks. It's kind of like Microsoft. There's lots of ways to do the same thing in the program. <laughs> exactly. So, um, uh, let's see. So we've transplanted things, um, We've started things from seed. Oh, you know, I, we've had we, you and I, Donna, have been talking. You have been mentioning Brussels sprouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diane and I like Brussels sprouts. I know that they can be um, uh, victims. Aphids like them a lot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I've never actually grown them because I try to avoid plant. I try to avoid plants that are victims, right? Because I don't want to deal with. In? Don't want to deal with the problems, right? So, um, uh, can you walk me through how to grow Brussels sprouts, like from start to finish? Well, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat you are. I've never. Oh, I thought you had. I thought them. you had grown them. Oh, okay. No, I've never grown them. Mark and I like them, and we figured we'd grow a couple. We're not huge fans, but you know, a couple on the kebabs in the fall or. Uh, his whole family has decided that anything bacon wrapped is good. <laughs> and we have a Hoffman family reunion this summer. So uh, uh, anyway, we figured we might do some bacon wrapped uh, Brussels sprouts. I'll bet, I'll bet a bacon wrapped Brussels sprout would be pretty darn good. Yeah. Um, and I think if you cut, cut them in half and wrap them, they're a little bit on the, the more on the bite size um, sure. instead of a mouthful. Um, but um, anyway, from what I, what I gather from seeing them in the community gardens up here in Casper is you kind of plant them out like a, a cabbage or a cauliflower, but then they grow a pretty hefty kind of broccoli-like stem. What, what do you think the soil temperature needs to be? Is that, is it? It's a, it's a coal crop, so it, it doesn't need to be very warm. I mean, okay. Yeah, and they usually have them. a long, they usually have a long growing season, like a hundred days, right? hundred and ten yeah, days. Yeah, hundred, hundred and ten days. So they're pushing mm-hmm. our growing season. If we have a wet spring or an early snow in the fall, they can really be right on the border of 
not very happy in the garden. But um, I also understand that kind of like some of those other things, they, they get a little bit better flavor if they if get to fill in the fall. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, they, they grow fairly tall. And from what I understand, you can harvest the little, um, the little Brussels sprout, the sprouts, the heads that look like a miniature cabbage, and they may send up two new ones from the node where the one came off of. So, so as the plant is growing vertically, Brussels sprouts will send out a leaf and they'll also send out a, a, what I think would be called a bud where the Brussels sprout comes out at. And it comes yeah. out on the side near the leaf. Yes. Yes. So, they um, spiral up, up the stalk mm -hmm. um, and every place there's a leaf, a sprout comes out. And then you, you harvest the ones from below as more are developing on top. So by the time the fall comes and you're done harvesting, the bottom stalk may be completely bare from harvesting and the top still has sprouts on it. So um, I've, seen, I've seen pictures of um, Brussels sprouts standing in the field and all the lower leaves have been removed, but there's still sprouts on the stalk. So uh, you, you can harvest them one at a time going up the stalk, but do, do you purposely remove the leaves so that the so that the Brussels sprouts can develop further? I'm, I'm guessing that they want the leaves on there to start with for the photosynthesis to occur and then as the sprouts develop um, that they want the energy to go into the leaves of the sprouts rather than so, in the large leaves that we we don't typically consume. So maybe we need to do a little more research on the growth and development of that's, Brussels sprouts, huh? That's a good set of questions there, Jeff. Yeah, okay. Sure. So um, uh, when Diane and I prepare Brussels sprouts, we usually uh, cut them in half uh, and um, cauliflower. We'll prepare cauliflower with them, throw them in a plastic bag with um, uh, olive oil and some salt, shake that up really well, get everything coated, and then pour them on a cookie sheet with um, uh, uh, parchment paper on it and roast them for about 20 minutes at 420 or something like that. And they're pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They don't need bacon. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. The, the Hoffman family actually um, had some donuts last year that had bacon icing on them. So, I have I have seen donuts that have maple bacon icing on them, right, and yeah. that, there's just something. I guess that's okay, but uh, yeah. not not necessarily something I need to try. I guess I'm I'm willing to try everything once if I feel like it, but it seems like that needs to go into the category of the hamburgers that are made on a on a donut for the you know they use the donut for the bun. So slice that one in half and and put a hamburger in the middle, but. Then you got to decide: Do you put ketchup and mustard on it? And then I'm lost. I don't then, know. Then, then, then wrap the whole thing in bacon. It, it, oh, it'll be good. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> so Jerry, have you had any experience with Brussels sprouts? We have, and we grew some one year, and they grew up pretty tall. Uh, they grew up about uh, almost two and a half feet, and mine were bitter. They were just really bitter, okay. and and uh, I'm not sure what I did wrong. If I didn't water them enough or watered them too much, I, I don't know. So by, go ahead, Donna. I understand that the coal crops get somewhat bitter if maybe they don't get enough water or if they get too hot hmm. in the heat of summer, which since Torrington is our banana belt here in Wyoming, um, if it was a particularly hot summer, which you may or not, remember um that may have had something to do with it but i'm uncertain we we try not to remember the particularly hot summers oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> since we're going down this pathway uh do you feel that jalapenos get hotter if they're choked off of water i think they do develop more of the, capsaicin. the oils the capsaicin oil um <clears throat> if they're short on water. Um, and of course, the capsaicin pr is produced in 
the placenta of the, of the pod right surrounding the seeds. So that part that's attached to the seeds is hotter than the tissue that we typically think of as, as the, the pepper, the part that we typically eat. So if any of you are wanting the hotter part, it's the portion that you usually cut out when you're trimming the seeds up. Or you spin it all up and use it all. Yeah. Um, so again, on that same note, radishes, if you choke a radish with, without water and restrict the water, do they get hotter as well? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what causes pithiness in a radish? I think if they get too, if they go too long with the dry. If they grow too long? Okay. And, and they're, they tend to be some of the ones that we plant early in the season because they're such a quick crop. And I think if they go too late into the heat of summer, then, then they're thinking that it's time to start sending up a flower and sending, starting to reproduce. Sure. And once they go into that reproductive state, because their flower stalk is so tall, I think that root is, is kind of protecting itself from the possibility of tipping over or the, the top lodging falling over, uh, that they get a little bit woody to support that flower structure. Okay. So Donna, just like uh, garlic, garlic will put up a, a, a big stalk, flower stalk, and then have uh, scapes on the end of it. Would you recommend cutting off the radish flower? Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the spiciness of radish. A little bit goes a long way for me. So I'm only going to plant a few of them. And my husband and my dad both like them. So we'll have some, but um, I wouldn't keep them once they start to uh, produce that flower. Once they start to uh, head out or, or develop that flower, to me, they're done. And I would pull them and, and either leave that space for something else to grow into or, or plant something else in that space that uh, can still produce. Donna, have you ever seen radishes being used as a cover crop? I've heard of it. I actually have not seen it. Jeff's nodding his head, so he probably has more experience with that, maybe from the Midwest. So um, they've actually used radishes as a cover crop in this area for a couple of reasons. Um, uh, they use the daikon type, which are the, they, they grow really long. Uh, they use them to break up hard pan in the soil. And then uh, they also use them as uh, feed, livestock feed. So uh, they, they, it's usually not a straight radish crop. It's usually mixed with something else and um, will provide feed for uh, livestock. And so when, also, I was, when I was a teenager, my dad grew turnips for a, a crop for our sheep. And so I've seen the turnips, but not necessarily the radish itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And do beet growers ever grow radishes to re reduce their nematode? load i have not heard that i don't know i don't know huh. they're in they're in the same family with mustard so it may be a repellent because of the the oils yeah. that radishes produce but i'm i'm not certain about that either i don't know i know when i rototill radishes they have a very pungent smell and odor uh horseradish as well has that pungent -y odor when you rototill it <laughs> we, we had somebody in the Master Gardener program here in Natrona County asking about horseradish the other day. And I got several responses, including one from my husband, who's a Master Gardener, um, saying, I'm not interested. Thank you, no. Um, and we, we tend to agree that it's very much worthwhile to purchase horseradish sauce and not process it. So, <laughs> I, my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law gave us a horseradish plant about five years ago. We've never harvested. My neighbor and I have spoke about the plans to harvest, but we've not harvested yet. And it makes a great, great plant. I mean, it it grows up three, three and a half feet. It it blooms. It, it's a lovely plant. It's a little aggressive. You have to keep knocking it back, but. Uh, it, it, it really is pungent when you go over it with the tiller. You, you can yeah. knock it back a little bit with your rototiller every year, Jerry. So, and, so and we Jerry, have. if you remember correctly, uh, you were going to diminish your use of the rototiller and, and go a little bit more <laughs> towards the, the no-till process. How's that going? 
not so well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Was, wasn't last weekend the annual Rototiller Festival at your house? <laughs> it's coming up. Uh, we got we got sidetracked a little bit, and so it's it's coming up. Okay. All right. <laughs> but not hey, so uh, much, Donna. I, I, to me, using a broad fork is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And for me, personally, I have my own degenerative changes about myself. And it just seems to be easier to use the rototiller. Okay. So have you shown him the, the recreational rototiller video, Jeff? Uh, I do not know if Jerry has seen the recreational rototiller video. I have not. You should he could, send him the link. I should probably send him the link. We, <laughs> we might just have to do that. Yeah. Uh, hey, we've hit about halfway through our program. Let's uh, take a couple of minutes and listen to our sponsors, and we'll be back in a bit. University of Wyoming Extension events will not be held in person through May 15th, 2020. Our educators are hard at work planning virtual education and activities. We will continue with much of our programming digitally on our website and official Facebook pages. See what we're up to this week at yoextension.org or visit your county Facebook page. You are listening to the Lawn and Garden Podcast, Presented by University of Wyoming Extension, extending the land-grant mission across the state of Wyoming with a wide variety of educational programs and services. Visit us at yoextension.org. We're back. This is Jeff Edwards. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program with Jerry Erschebeck and Donna Hoffman. Glad that you're both with us today. We are talking a little bit about uh, seed germination, planting plants, planting our garden. Uh, I wanted to circle back around and talk a little bit about Brussels sprouts one more time. And I apologize for that. That's okay. Uh, The the information that I've read on Brussels sprouts is they actually serve as the garden's liver. Okay. I know that's kind of a weird analogy, but um, if you have, well, let me put it this way. Uh, the Soviet Union actually uses Brussels sprouts as a um, toxic waste uh, soils cleanup. Mm. They will, um, uh, if they're reclaiming some land that has been messed up somehow, they will go in and apparently uh, Brussels sprouts will remove things like heavy metals and uh, from from the soil. So um, if if you have weird things in your soil, Brussels sprouts might pull them up into the plant. Um, I, I, just something that I read at one point in time, and I thought, well, uh, okay. <laughs> so, but Brussels sprouts are good. They're tasty. They're nutritious. So you know there's a word for that, right? Uh, Phyto, no. Phytoremediation. There you go. That's the word. So when I was in Laramie, I was active in the Greenbelt Committee okay. that worked with um, Union Pacific Railroad. And uh, they had that Thai plant south of, of uh-huh. I-80 that was a brownfield uh, remediation site that is now a town park. And they planted several thousand cottonwood, willow, and other blue spruce trees down there. And they actually pump water through that system, through those trees, and the movement of the water moves the hydrocarbons to the surface just because of the movement of the water on that site. And uh, they, they're using the, uh, the pumping process of the, the trees to move those hydrocarbons up and out of that uh, site. Then they pump the water off of there and filter off the uh, creosote that had been on that site. And they're actually able to recapture it and send it to another treatment plant and reuse the creosote. But wow. Yeah. Fascinating. So plants plants have quite a set of skills that maybe we aren't using to their fullest extent. I think I think that's the word of the day, phytoremediation. Okay, all right. So do they ever use phytoremediation with gold mining? Because they use a lot of really harsh chemicals to extract gold. Like mercury? Like mercury. <laughs> <laughs> the only the only place I'm familiar with that has a gold mine is in Nevada. And it's not a place that I would think you'd be pumping lots of water through cottonwood trees. So I'm unfamiliar or, with that. Or connection. Brussels sprouts. Or Brussels sprouts. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting. I'll be darned. 
Yeah. Interesting, interesting thing. Okay. So what else did you guys want to talk about the rest of the day? Well, I would like to talk about uh, and ask Donna about pruning. Is, is now the time to prune? Because I, my apple tree is starting to really bud. And so uh, I know that social distancing for apples is kind of a thing. So we don't want those little bugs butting up against each other and going over to the next apple. Is now a good time to start uh, pruning my apple tree? So any time that our trees are dormant is a really great time to be pruning, um, especially now that for the most part we've gotten out of the extreme cold winter temperatures that we see in December and January. Um, so now is a perfect time to be pruning. The only problem is, is that if this becomes a year that's wet with uh, a lot of splash around for uh, fire blight, we may see some reoccurrence of fire blight in those, those pruning scars, but uh, it's better to do the pruning than to leave the buds there and have things get all jammed up and, and tight where uh, microbial activity along with insect activity can be a problem. So yes, now is a great time to be pruning and it's a good way to get out in the sunshine that we have uh, in the garden while, while maybe you're not spending as much time outdoors uh, otherwise. So would you remove any of the buds? So you don't want to remove the fruiting spurs, the ones that are a couple of inches long and have several flower buds on them. At this point, you want as much blooming as possible, but you want those fruiting spurs spread out so that you don't get a whole cluster of fruit on a branch and then eventually that branch has too much weight on it and, and it's spread out. So you do some spreading of the, um, the fruiting spurs on the branch and then after they've bloomed and the fruit is set, then you can thin the fruit so that you don't get too many fruits on a individual fruiting spur. So okay. some now and some after, after fruit set. And when is the best time to put on that? I forget the name of it, but it's that sticky stuff that you put on the bark on the, the trunk of the tree so that bugs will crawl up and get stuck. Tanglefoot. Tangle foot. I, it was on the tip of my tongue, but I knew Jeff would know it. So, <laughs> yes, um, probably you need to put that on um, after we've had several rainstorms, um, but before the insects become too too active, so so that that doesn't wash off. Okay. Well, and we won't had, wash off. Okay. Oh, <laughs> it won't wash on off. your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so my brother has this apricot tree, and last year he had a, a just a spectacular uh, array of of apricots. But we've had some really cold overnight lows, and he's had some buds. Uh, he's probably not going to have any apricots, right? His his uh, apricot production this year will be much less spectacular than last year. <laughs> the, the plant probably put so much energy into fruit production last year that it may go into a little bit of a slump in production this year. Um, I tend to relate it to um, women being pregnant. Um, usually there's a lull between um, the energy output from, from having one pregnancy to putting the energy into another pregnancy. And if a fruit tree really uh, is heavy in production one year usually the next year is pretty low production. So one of the benefits of thinning the fruit from year to year to year is to get consistent production every year rather than a real heavy load of production one year and, and little to none the next year or two. So in apple trees, don't they usually say that you get a bumper crop every three years? That's probably the case. Um, I think that if you thin the fruit on that bumper crop year that you can get more in the second and third year. Which is really hard to do. It's very difficult for people it to seems thin fruit. counterproductive and, yeah. and uh, um, people, yeah, it's just difficult to do. When you know that there's gonna be an apple there this year and who knows what's gonna happen with the tree for next year. But if you want consistent 
production so that you know that you have a certain amount of fruit from that tree every year, it's best to remove some of that fruit. Yeah, Jerry, my mother's apricot tree last year was just absolutely loaded and we would go and pick five gallon buckets of apricots just in about 20 minutes. It was pretty crazy. And uh, she's already mentioned that um, the, the blossoms had started to crack open. And so with the weather the last couple of weeks, I'm guessing most of those are done. So she probably will not have the, the uh, uh, apricot production that she had. The other thing that I've noticed is um, we have strawberries in our high tunnel. And of course, um, they started blooming about three weeks ago, which is really odd, right? Uh, and because of the weather that we've had uh i've noticed black hearts in them which means that those flowers have aborted they've frosted and they've aborted i've i've uh, taken some pictures of them and uh, i can share them later on but it just looks like a normal flower in the center black so huh. they will they will abort and not produce fruit they, they know better yeah or something <clears throat> along those lines <laughs> so jerry so uh um, are you, do you have big plans this year for a garden? Well, we do. And, and uh, I mentioned last week that uh, I have a lawn care gentleman that is cleaning up lawns. And he so graciously came and dumped his dry gla gry dried grass onto my garden. And I had, I've had some leaves and that sort of thing. So I'm trying to be incorporating some more some more fiber and some more hummus, not hummus. Humus. 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 Ryan, can you, can you take care of that for us? Thank you. <laughs> hummus is an edible garbanzo <laughs> bean product. Yeah, and it's really good with olive oil and that sort of thing, a little spice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I've, I've, I've really tried uh, incorporating some more, some more humus into my soils and and uh, that sort of thing. And so uh, I've changed our sitting area. We had a, uh, a canvas uh, 10 by 10 sitting area with the metal ones, you know, gazebo. Gazebo. gazebo kind of thing. And we've moved that. And so now I'm going to plant my pumpkin where that soil has not been, uh, it's been in fallow. And so now I'm, I'm hoping that that'll help out. But I did notice that that's also where my tree had iron, deficiency iron fluorosis cirrhosis chlorosis chlorosis iron chlorosis and uh so i'll have to put incorporate a little iron a little more iron in that area but yeah we have we have a lot of uh we have two raised beds they're four by eight by about three foot high and so we always like to put really good soil in there and so We've bought in some soil and we're going to put our, um, I think our salad mix in there and that sort of thing. So four by eight and three foot high, are they soil all the way through or do you have fill in the bottom of them? So you didn't have to bring as much soil in for that. We use newspaper to fill. And so we use bundles of newspaper on that bottom. And so we were hoping that it incorporate some um, uh, worms to come up through we put a heavy uh wire mesh cloth underneath it to keep out the moles and voles because we have a little both. of both <laughs> and so hopefully the worms will find sanctuary in there and and uh do that sort of thing but uh, i mentioned to my nephew that we need to start a, a worm farm yes uh, we're always thinking of business opportunities, right? So we're thinking maybe we should do a, a worm farm. Have you ever done anything like that? So when I was a kid, okay, one of my entrepreneurial activities was to raise worms and sell them for uh, fish bait. Um, but I only did it in a little tiny bucket and it worked fairly well. And I made a buck or two and it was okay. So worm casting fertilizer is supposed to be one of one of those really exceptional fertilizers, uh, along with chicken manure. Um, but, you know, you need kind of a bigger space and bigger opportunity. But I don't sure. know much about it. So I have a master gardener in Casper who 
comes in every year when we teach the soils lessons to the master gardeners. She's also taught at a couple of our spring conferences, but she does vermicomposting. She's done it kind of under the kitchen sink or in a bin in her garage or her basement for years. But um, when her father was still living and she lived on a rural piece of property, she actually vermicomposted on a commercial basis and she turned her compost with a little tractor. Uh, so if you really want to get into it, I have a resource for you. But she, she does a program with each class of My Master Gardener trainees and we always do a drawing at that class and she gives away the, the worm farm that she builds while we're, we're doing class. Jerry, so, you, need to, you need to participate in that, man. I would like to. I'd like to be okay. uh, notified or okay. uh, somehow. We can, we can work that out. Good After deal. all of us have started doing our educational programming via Zoom, yeah. we may be able to branch out. You want to join the Natrona County Master Gardeners next year? Uh, I've not joined the Goshen County Master Gardeners. <laughs> Maybe I should do them first. But, oh, okay. Uh, I've done this. I've done gardening by uh, hook and crook, by mistake and and success. Uh, uh, I was taught by my mom and my dad. So I kind of no, I don't think so. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> you're too old to new, learn new stuff. Is that what you're saying, Jerry? Oh no, I'm learning new stuff all the time. I'm on this <laughs> Zoom program for God's sakes. Yeah. So my my parents came to one of the spring conferences, I think actually it was my mother that was here and she went home and told my dad about it. And uh, they've lived in town for quite a while. Since then they've gotten back into ranching because we did when I was a kid. But anyway, mom went home and told dad about it and she wanted him to build some uh, tubs for hit, for worm composting because she's always been really good about composting and, and using kitchen scraps and things. Um, and this was going to be a more concerted effort and a, a cleaner way to do it. So they got into worm composting in a, a Rubbermaid tub in their basement. Dad got to the point that he had three Rubbermaid tubs in his basement. And he he would have company over and he'd say, hey, you want to come downstairs? I've got 10,000 head of livestock in the basement. <laughs> so then mom got fruit flies in the kitchen. And she decided it was because of the worm farm in the basement that she had fruit flies in the kitchen. So dad had to get rid of his livestock in the basement, but they've gotten back into it. So, so you know, verm vermicomposting is kind of like sourdough, right? You got to feed it. You got to take care of it. You got to take them out every once in a while and use them. But so, yeah. you know, it's same type of activity. Yeah. But any, I know enough master gardeners that have worms that if you want a dozen worms to get started, I can get you started. So, so I was thinking maybe of an old bathtub and put it into your garden so it would be a container, but I don't know if it would be too cold. The only problem with that is the red wigglers are the, the best vermicomposting worms, according to Lynn, and they are not cold hardy. Oh, so, so it'd have to be inside. You, you can do them seasonally, but then you have to bring some of them in so that you have some left over for next year. Like um, the sourdough use, bread. Use in the winter months indoors, which of course is a much longer season than our 110 day growing season. <laughs> you bet. So, um, uh, Jerry, we've talked before about different things that we're planting. Have you ever planted uh, bush beans? Uh, no, uh, pole like beans? pole beans. Yeah. I, we have, uh, uh, we have, as a matter of fact, and uh, I built a, a, fence a trellis to put up and my first one was uh 15 feet high and my wife kind of got excited about that because she says what are you trying to do kill me and so if you're harvesting on something my my advice would be to build something only maybe eight feet tall and so um uh eight feet tall would be be very very well uh received uh you just build it out of two by fours and put it up in the air and support it so that the wind, once you have that growth on there, it becomes a sail. And so you really have to support that so it won't fall over. Okay. So I might have to rethink my strategy on 
pole beans. So <laughs> I think one, one, one of my master gardeners uh, sends me messages quite frequently with his plans for gardening and his plant addiction images and things like that. He did send me a meme the other day that there was one plant in the corner of the house before seclusion started and then the picture of after seclusion stop, stops and there's like 60 plants in the corner. So he's still very open to ordering plants online, even though he's not going out shopping very much. But um, he and I may have watched the same vertical gardening video because last weekend, his mother-in-law, who's also a master gardener, um, she and I were at a same event where we did not get out of our cars, but we visited across the parking lot. Anyway, um, they were headed later on to pick up some hog panels from one of the uh, ag supply places here in town and use them to branch from or bridge over from one raised bed to the other raised bed for vertical uh -huh. gardening. And it creates quite a lovely arbor over the yeah. pathway between the two raised beds. And Mark and I also have four by eight raised beds um, ours are a little bit staggered in the yard because I'm trying to create a semicircular pattern in the yard. So they overlap by four feet. And I'm planning to use some hog panels to, to create some uh, vertical gardening. And the video I watched, it's beautiful with a, a squash or a pumpkin growing over it. And the fruit, the cucumbers hang down and are really easy to harvest because they're right there at waist, hip, shoulder height to harvest sure. um she had some beautiful really long um runner beans on on a pole as well and those had like foot long bean pods on them so it anyway, was very attractive and created some shaded pathways that the fruit's hanging on and it also helped create some shaded areas in the raised beds where the one plant is creating shade for the next raised bed. So I'm, yeah. I'm thinking those are going to be some fun things to try this summer. Aren't the hog panels 20 feet long? 16. Oh, 16. Um, so they create an eight foot arch. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. But um, the one issue I'm seeing is I've got four foot of overlap, but I understand the panels are 50 inches long. So I'm going to have to cut a notch out of one of them because it's going to hit the corner of the, the raised bed because they don't over their four foot overlap, not, not two inches extra. Bolt cutters work really yeah. well on those. So, so I'm probably going to end up cutting like one row off of uh, the hog sure. panels or the other, the method that the, the gal in the video used is she put a T post um, and tied the, the raised, the, the hog panel to the T posts and that gave her a, like a one foot or an 18 inch gap from the top of the raised bed to where the panel, the trellising actually started, which gave her a little bit more height. Um, but like Jerry, I put hardware cloth in the bottom of my raised bed so that we don't get rodents up in the raised bed. So I can't put a T, put a T post in the raised bed. They'd have to be outside the raised bed. So okay. have a little bit of engineering to do before. Sure. Uh, I come up with my end solution. It'll, it'll all use, work out. We use the hog panel for uh, our tomatoes and weave them yeah. in and out of the, mm -hmm. of the hog panel as supports for our tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Yep. My uncle used the hog panels to grow cucumbers. Yep. And man, it did really well. Mm -hmm. And on the, the, they had usually migrate towards the backside and he would just go in behind and, pick those cucumbers off and they've really done well yeah yeah instead of um making a, a hoop out of the hog panels i just use them vertically to right. trellis my cucumbers on and they you know on the side and they do great yeah Works great. i'd seen <clears throat> yours and that's kind of why i started thinking along those lines and then i saw this vertical garden panel i went huh i can have it yeah. too so and, and there are there are people who actually use those hog panels and tie them together and make themselves uh, hoop houses out of them. They'll cover oh, okay. them with, they'll tie them together, make sure that there aren't any pokey bits uh, hanging out of them, and then they'll cover them with uh, a greenhouse cover and have their own hoop house made out of that. And oh. usually they're usually they're strong enough that if the snow comes, it'll 
crush them a little bit, but then as soon as the snow melts, they'll pop back up back to up. their normal yep. size. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we're getting close on time, but Jeff, I had asked you last week for some advice on what to do with a greenhouse structure that Mike, Mark and I are uh, yes. rehabbing. We, yes. uh, we went to the lumber store on Saturday and, and worked a little bit, but we, the weather was not so great for uh, finishing our project. But Mark's been out every day after work this week so far and uh, has almost got the lumber attached to the sides. So we're, oh, we're doing the purlins you're talking about. We had a long discussion about whether the wood should go on the inside or on the outside. He went out on the lower sidewall, <laughs> and, and I think we're going to go on the outside on the upper portion, but there's, there's big discussions about whether that's going to be wear spot or, or if it should go on the inside instead of the outside. Well, uh, send me an updated picture. Okay. Okay. Donna, uh, we yeah. have that same sort of discussionary panel at our house on <laughs> a particular number of things. <laughs> and so sometimes you just wait for another summer and you go, don't you remember we tried it your way <laughs> and it didn't work out or we both agree that by golly, that doesn't work out so good. Yeah. Yeah. A little time usually fixes all arguments That's or right. excuse me, uh, discussions, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> So, Jerry, uh, we are uh, just about out of time. Is there anything that you would like to summarize or point out? Or Yes, I would. Um, now, the Master Gardeners are giving away giant pumpkin seeds and will be available at the University of Wyoming Extension Office west of Torrington. So okay. we're, we're trying to uh, uh, get out the message that giant pumpkins and the contest we're still hopeful that that's a go, but you know, you have to have a pumpkin in order to try to do a way off. And so we're giving out the Bose pumpkin seeds um, and you can call ahead that probably go ahead and come out to the uh, parking lot and just give them to you so you don't have to come in. But I would call ahead and say, hey, I'm in the parking lot. I'm here for my pumpkin seeds. Or, or they'll put them in the mailbox that's out by the front door. Or yeah, they there's there's multiple ways to do that, and but uh, so if you're gonna start a pumpkin, May first is generally what's thinking about how to do that. And when you do start it, uh, you maybe cut your your container in half at least, and then tape it back up so that when you have that pumpkin growing, the transplant process is as minimally evasive to the roots as possible. So then you just cut your, your container, you probably put your container in and maybe even cut the bottom out or make a lip on that bottom so that you can just slide it out easy enough. So um, uh, transplanting is the major thing that you really wanna be the most careful with. Okay. But you have right. to have a seed. Yeah. You have and, to have some now, seeds in order to have a giant pumpkin. Okay, now we, we know where to get them. I heard a, a tip on growing cucurbits the other day, and one of the tips was that you break a little the the tip off of the seed so that the seed coat so that the root pops out of there a little bit easier. We call that scarfing, and you actually use a nail file to go around the tip of the pumpkin seed or the cucurbit, uh, which is, includes the squash so that you have a tendency to go to a, a white rind. You can see the inner, inner workings of the seed as you file away the outside of that seed, and it just makes germination so much easier. Okay. So when the less, seed, so when the pumpkin- on the plant. Yeah, so when the plant actually comes up and out, a lot of times you'll see that seed hanging on to the first cotyledons, the and it's coat. so much, and it's so much easier to get that seed coat off of there if you've scarfed the seed in for in the first place. Okay, alrighty. Hey, uh, I think this is going to wrap up our program for the week. Donna, thank you for being our guest. It's good to see you. And uh, Jerry, thank you once again for participating, and uh, we'll do this again for next week. Sounds great. And sooner or later, we're going to be doing this weekly. Yes. Yes. Very soon.
All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Lawn and Garden with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek, presented by KGOS and KERM Radio in Torrington and by University of Wyoming Extension, growing people, knowledge, and communities 